The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Mr. Tully, you're late. Not a very good way to start. Late for what? What is this? This was the orientation, which you have now missed. You're feeling disoriented. It's only natural. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 3rd. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing, just right. Yeah, one first thank uh, our operator here is Oltan. We actually, uh, for, for operating the show today, we made it to the uh, third show of Just Right. If you want to call in today, it's uh, 519-661-3600 to join in our conversation. On today's show, we want to talk a bit about gas prices, global warming, and maybe a few inconvenient truths also about global warming that you might be hearing from the other side of the issue. Um, now, if you missed the orientation, of course, uh, that is what I mean when I say I'm not right-wing. Don't worry about that. I'll review it and remind you uh, very explicitly and unambiguously from time to time over future shows. It does not mean conservative in the way that I look at the right, but that's something I've already discussed on past shows. Um, this show really, what I'm trying to do with it is, you know, just get into some frank talk about some of the issues of our day, expanding the base of subjects uh, that you normally hear about on, on talk shows of this nature. It looks like we'll be here every Thursday from 11 to noon, so to be sure to tune in. And of course, the, the show is also available online at uh, chrw.ca, I believe it is. And I uh, just, just found out this morning that uh, uh, apparently I'm on Facebook, and you can get a link to the show from there as well. I don't know anything about Facebook or even how that works, but uh, I'm getting uh, introduced to these kinds of things. I understand you just look up Robert Metz, and you can find a link to the show from there as well. Um, you know, I'm going to get into some of these other issues. It's been a crazy week these last two weeks, especially with the frenzy on global warming and issues of the environment. But first... I want to talk about something com completely different. Two weeks ago on this show, I did something I very rarely do, and that's make predictions. <laughs> and sure enough, my prediction has already not come true. And that prediction was that this new show that would be coming out, uh, you heard the clip at the beginning there, that was uh, a clip with Nathan Fillion and from the, from the show Drive, which got all kinds of fanfare, it was on the front pages of uh, TV Times, you know, the actors in the show were featured on full-page features, and if you're looking in your TV Times this week, you'll notice that it is still listed uh, for tomorrow night on CKCO, don't bother tuning in, it will not be on, uh, just as I discovered it wasn't on last week Friday when I tuned in to watch the fourth episode, nor was it on on Monday, even though it was listed in our guides all the way through. Now, what I said a couple weeks ago about this show, I said that, you know, I kind of expected this show to be on par with Lost and, you know, Battlestar and Heroes and shows of that nature, because uh, I was batting pretty, pretty good averages on guessing which shows were going to be a, a big hit over the last few years. I pegged Lost, the first, first episode I saw, 
I remember the first episode of Battlestar Galactica I saw. I remember telling my friends, I said, hey, this show just raised the bar on science fiction, and it's going to be a big hit, and of course it was. And then Heroes again, another show. I saw one show of that, and I said, this one's going to be a big one, and it's the number one, uh, one of the number one shows. But uh, anyways, if you were a fan of Drive, it's already been canceled. It's almost the, the curse of Nathan Fillion, who was its star and had the same kind of experience in the show Firefly. And that was actually what I talked about a couple weeks ago. I actually went with a warning. To me, the big surprise about Drive was at least they played the first couple episodes in order, which they did not do with some other shows that really had to struggle, and that was Firefly, of course. And if you think back to the 1960s, the original Star Trek series had the same kind of problem. And, uh, you know, you, you start wondering, here, here's the basic problem. Why did Drive fail? No ratings. And, you know, I tend to look at ratings almost as television's curse because many good shows, and I, I believe you can tell a good show independently of how many people are watching it. I think that's pretty clear because ratings, after all, are merely about how many exact numbers of people are watching at an exact moment in time. And if you don't get the numbers there, even a good show, a bad show, any kind of show, you know, could make it or break it basing, based just on that. But if you want people to be watching your show, you cannot be moving the listings around. You can't change it every other week. Like, you know, quality and entertainment value are independently measurable. You know, that's how I look at it. And, and, and of course, ratings are really mainly important to advertisers. But what I found here, take a look at Drive. I only caught the first episodes quite by accident on a Friday night when they were not listed. And uh, because I had a friend call me and say, you might want to check this show out because they knew I liked the actor, Nathan Fillion. And so I checked it out and I said, great show. Well, sure enough, uh, trying to find the show later on was impossible. So how can you get ratings when you make it impossible to find the darn show in the first place? Uh, and not only that, you know, on CKCO, they put it on the Friday night slot. That's kind of all, almost considered a one foot in the grave uh, of, of the ratings slot when you're put on Friday night on a TV show. That was actually the same problem the original Star Trek had as well. But then when uh, Fox actually scheduled Hero, or rather uh, Drive on the Monday night, which is when they had it on, they put it on opposite the number one show, Heroes, a real heavy a heavy hitter program, and you'd think that, you know, you're appealing to the same audience, and they're splitting that audience in two. Uh, you know, politicians always talk about splitting the vote. Well, that's what you're doing here. You just split the audience on this whole situation, and then you wonder why you're not getting good ratings. So, you know, it's funny, because if you look at the history of some shows that we look at in retrospect, and you just can't help think of, of Star Trek. I'm talking about the original Star Trek and the whole Star Trek series. I wonder... Uh, you know, I've, I've done some reading, and we find that uh, it's still today, believe it or not, the number one basic demographic for television in males aged 18 to 55, which explains why it's in kind of perpetual reruns, particularly on the so-called male-oriented television networks. But you got to remember, uh, when Star Trek came out in the 60s, it was a ratings disaster from the very beginning, and. Uh, Every year it was being threatened with cancellations and people wrote letters to keep the show going. And uh, eventually that was successful. 
the show made it to three years in running, which apparently I understand is uh, more or less um, the minimum you need to get into syndication in a way that you can run enough shows and keep it running without people getting bored with the same episodes over and over again. And you can do it nightly, which is very important. So they did break that mark. But, um, you know, today the Star Trek uh, uh, franchise is a perpetual money machine. And it's based solely on its capital value, since they're not producing any more shows, of course. And so in many ways, it is the ultimate capitalist dream to be, you know, constantly running these shows and uh, talking about, you know, just uh, pulling in the cash. Uh, I was astounded to hear some of the advertising dollars still being pulled in on a single broadcast of an episode that's as old as Star Trek, made in the 80s, made in the 60s. They average, you know, 800000 uh, dollars per broadcast, up to a million if you're talking Star Trek Next Generation. According to an article I remember seeing in the National Post, this was about a year and something ago. So, uh, you know, the money on these shows, I can understand the importance of of ratings, of the importance of getting that, you know, getting enough people to watch your show, but um, if, that's, if you're going to do things like this, play shows in the wrong order, move them around on the viewers all the time, one of the reasons I think the heroes uh, made it so big in such a hurry was that it was consistently played every week, every time on the Monday night at the same time. They didn't move it around, and when they stopped for about five or six weeks for a break, they told you in advance, they told you when they were coming back. I'm going, wow, this is real progress for the geniuses down there in in executive land, at TV land there, uh, actually putting a program on at the same time. Uh, it's pretty tough, uh, tough enough with all the competition out there. They're also dealing with, uh, uh, you know, in the internet, people can download these shows at any time they want. So surely you've got to make it easier if you want to keep that television market going. Um, you know, just to make it easy for us viewers and us fans, people who even want to watch the show, we can't watch the show because we can't find it. And then you tell us you're not getting the ratings. Come on, give me a break. Anyways, when we come back after this set of breaks, uh, we're going to switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about gas prices and I think that's going to also uh, segue into the whole issue of global warming. Once again, if you want to reach us here at the station, it's uh, 519-661-3600. We'll see you on the other side of this. We went to Ottawa, Ottawa, where Stockwell Day has found out that leader of the opposition is perhaps not a day job. Prime Minister Jean Chrétien knows why. It's because he's too far to the right. You know, and uh, when he wore that wetsuit, you could see that, that he was too far to the right. You know, uh, and uh, for me, I think that's why he has trouble to control his caucus. The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Gasoline is two damn dollars a gallon. And that's affecting my sex life. Because now I only date women who are within a five gallon radius of my house. 
if you're beyond five gallons, I want some guarantees. <laughs> and I don't understand why is gas so high? Didn't we just have a war? We helped Kuwait. Didn't we just kick Saddam out of that country? That country should be giving us free gasoline for at least 10 years. Because it's a conspiracy of the oil companies. When I was in high school, it was 35 cents a gallon. They had gas wars. They'd kiss your butt, please, by here. They'd give you stamps, SNH green stamps. They'd give you service. They'd check your oil. They'd wipe your windshield. Now it's $2 a gallon. You gotta pump it yourself. When I was in high school, it was 35 cents a gallon, and the reason they gave us, they said that the world was running out of oil. Yeah, it was running out of the 35 cents a gallon oil. <laughs> Apparently, that shit's really rare. But there's plenty of $2 gallon oil out there. Three and four oceans of $5 gallon out there. We've yet tapped into. Lots of that $6 a gallon and $10 a gallon. You can get... If you put the price high enough, you'll find that the, supp the supply just may increase because somebody might produce more gas, and that's really the secret behind gas prices. Everybody's complaining about gas prices these days. You can't look at a newspaper, turn on any radio station, you've, talk shows are just going nuts with this right now. And it happens every time gas stays up over a bit over a dollar for a while. Um, don't know if you've visited uh, boycottgas.ca, run by organizer Wanda Hollis. And uh, I heard this uh, this lady on some of the talk shows, uh, you know, constantly repeating the same thing, that she's sick and tired of seeing gas prices, quote, fluctuate every day. Um, well, fluctuation is not a problem. I mean, if you want the price fixed, which is what the, the Competition Bureau would consider criminal. I mean, the Competition Bureau investigated uh, the oil industry and the gas industry at least half a dozen times, never found evidence of price fixing, which is what they're looking for. But the irony is that price fixing is what most people who are complaining about gas prices want. And, uh, and that's really, a, you know, kind of a, a double whammy. You're going to reduce the, uh, the supply of gas if you're going to fix prices because it just doesn't work that way. And look at some of the comments that I hear. I just glanced at, at some of them, jotted down the general comments that I would hear from people on the whole gas issue that kind of reveals to me uh, a tremendous lack of understanding of what's involved in, in the whole process of getting gas from the ground into your car. Um, you hear, I often hear, I heard a couple times, you know, why is gas uh, five or six cents cheaper in Sarnia but to buck five in London? Or as one caller I heard on one station saying, hey, it's 33 cents a gallon in the Mideast, but look what we're paying. Well, look, if you want to drive over to the Mideast and fill up over there and then come back and use your gas and figure out how much that's going to cost you by the time you get back here, uh, the dollar and something a liter for the, for the gas you're paying is going to seem really, really cheap. Uh, you know, it's disturbing, too, when you see organizers of something like Boycat Gas, Boy, Boycott Gas, uh, .ca, um, say things that, you know, they have these preconceptions of how gas prices, quote, should be, and that there is no reason for gas prices to fluctuate. Well, of course, there's always a reason, and it's the same reason all the time, supply and demand. Uh, when the supply goes down uh, relative to demand, the price has to go up. If the demand goes down relative to supply, the price will go down. And you never hear people complaining about prices going down when they do. 
If you want to see prices go down, you got to produce more. But it doesn't look like that's the future in store from us, listening to the way some people are talking about this. Um, you know, some people think it's outright robbery. I heard that comment made many times. Some people think uh, government and oil companies are in on a conspiracy. Uh, I heard some people even suggest, oh, they're implementing Kyoto early. <laughs> and, boy, if you don't like what you're paying for gas now, what are you, you going to feel like once Kyoto is implemented? And this is a very interesting logic I heard from one caller, and I've heard it expressed in many ways. One fellow said, uh, um, one oil company has a shortage. I think he was referring to the one that had the, uh, the fire in the refineries and stuff. But he couldn't understand why all oil companies would raise their prices. And he sort of compared it. So, you know, Sears burns down, and then Zeller's, Zeller's jacks up its prices. Well... If there was only one Sears and one Zellers, that's exactly what Zellers would do if Sears burned down. They would jack up their prices if they were selling the same thing that the other store was, and the demand remained the same. It's not like companies are not apart from each other when it comes to the marketplace. And I think perhaps that's why so many people think there's always collusion and that there's something going on out there that they can't see. But it's right under your nose. If you're out in the marketplace, even when you sell your house, uh, you know, you look around and you see what other people in your neighborhood are selling their houses for. You didn't pay anywhere near that for your house. You know, any more than, uh, you know, than anybody wants to make money on something. But you're going to have to sell it for what it gets. And it works the other way around, too. You might lose money on your home if the, neighbor you're, if the neighborhood that you are in uh, doesn't command more than what you want for your house. Um, I, I hear complaints like, oh, we've got to cut back on consumption. Well, that's completely backwards. What we need to do is produce more. Uh, populations are going to increase, and even if we do cut back on consumption, we still have to produce more. Um, another interesting comment I heard from someone said, hey, milk, milk prices don't fluctuate. Why do gas prices fluctuate? Well, just in case you haven't heard, milk prices are regulated by a marketing, marketing board, and they're fixed. And they're fixed at a very high level, higher than you would have to pay. If we allowed fluctuations in milk prices, the price you're paying now would probably be at the top end, generally speaking. And, uh, you know, you always, I remember seeing all these stories in, in the past news stories where they'd be flushing milk down the drain because they have oversupply. Because if the price is high, you're going to produce a little more than needed, and so it has to be regulated in secondary ways. Now, of course, the, uh, the real problem in North America is that we've had no new refineries built for over 30 years. It's, it's unbelievable. Here we are, this gas-guzzling society, and we've got no new refineries. Plenty of oil out there, but we cannot refine it, you know, process it fast enough. I understand one of the refineries, they've got a backlog of oil. It's like a dam, and they're just waiting for it to go through the refinery. But the demand on the other end is far greater than what they can produce, and so we're we're walking an edge right now, folks. We we haven't put no you know any new refineries out there for quite a while, and so uh, I think it's about time we start thinking about that because you know people always complain about pricing being being free, but that's the true democracy. When you see those prices out there, don't believe for a minute that oil companies can control them. They can set a price. I mean, everybody wants to fix a price for something they own. But if the market hasn't got the money, if the ability of the marketplace to pay is not there, they cannot sell their product. And it's, it's foolishness to think that a company is happy by jacking its price up to, to price it out of the reach of consumers, which is almost the mentality you think that some people are working on. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, if, I've, if I've created a widget and I want to sell it to you and I have to charge $1,000 because 
that's what I need in terms of my cost, the profit I want, and you don't have $1,000, you're not one of my customers, but I'd like you to be. So the only way I can get around that is make sure that you make over a thousand bucks or have a thousand dollars to pay for it or I drop my price but uh, you know that's the whole thing uh, liberal MP Dan McTeague was doing rounds on this one talking about how these gas price increases are completely unjustified were his words uh, and he cited a handful of companies in Ontario who he said quote do not compete and he particularly targeted Shell, Petrocan, Sunoco and Esso but here's an interesting thing he said. He said, we need more players. And then I thought for a second, wow, he's getting the idea. We need more competition out there. And then he said, but we don't have to produce more energy. Hmm. Now, does that make sense to you? Okay, so we've got uh, this fixed amount of energy, four players right now. If we had ten players selling the same fixed amount of energy, do you really think the price is going to go down? It's going to go up. Because each of those players has their fixed costs, has their overhead, has, has inventories they're going to have to keep independently. What you have to do, yeah, have more players, but also produce more. Don't expect the players to be dividing up the same size of pie. Uh, it's just unbelievable that somebody would say something like that. Um, you know, declining inventories in the U.S. is basically the problem right now. And I can see it out on the road today. There's a lot of more, more people out there on the road than, than there have been for quite a while. But really, uh, you know, and you hear people who are a little cynical about the whole oil situation. They say that we're addicted to oil. Well, it's a little bit like saying we're addicted to food, isn't it? I mean, you can't do without it. Uh, the idea that oil is no longer a necessity in our life is we've passed that point a long time ago. If we suddenly cut off the oil supply tomorrow, that'd be about the same as cutting off your blood supply because it's absolutely important that oil keeps flo keeps flowing. Uh, just on the on the last, I want to refer to uh, John Stossel in this regard. He he wrote a brilliant piece on this in his Myths, Lies, and Downright Stupidity, a book that was released in 2006. It's really funny. You ought to read this book because this book, uh, all the stupidities in it are things you basically read about in the paper from day to day. But basically he was dealing with the myth that gas prices are going through the roof, and of course his contention is that, quite to the contrary, gas is a bargain. And... Uh, this is his argument. This is, this is John Stossel talking, and I will quote him here. Quote, the media are saying that gas prices are at record highs for one simple-minded reason. They are economically illiterate, so they do not account for inflation. That makes the numbers look bigger than the costs actually are. Such reporting is silly. Not adjusting the inflation would mean that, movies, that the movies Meet the Fockers and Rush Hour 2 outgrowths Gone with the Wind. At the time I'm writing this, says Stossel, the average price of gasoline in the U.S. is 2.26 a gallon, a little higher than what we heard uh, from Paul Rodriguez at the opening of the show there. Once you account for inflation, that means that gas today is 67 cents a gallon, cheaper than it was in 1922, and 69 cents cheaper than in 1981. In March 1981, by the way, the price was $3.12 a gallon in the U.S. By failing to account for inflation, uh, people get so alarmed they just don't think about you know. So Stossel went out and he say what he would ask customers at a gas station. He says, "What costs more, gasoline or bottled water?" And of course, the answer he got from almost everyone was a gasoline. Quote at that very gas station, water was for sale at a dollar twenty-nine for a twenty-four hour twenty-four ounce bottle. That's six dollars and eighty-eight cents per gallon, three times 
what the station charged for gasoline. We should marvel how cheap gas is. What a bargain we get from oil companies. After all, it's easy to bottle water, but what does it take to produce and deliver gas? Oil has to be sucked out of the ground, sometimes from deep beneath an ocean. To get to the oil, the drills often have to bend and dig sideways through as much as five miles of earth. What they find then has to be delivered through long pipelines or shipped in monstrously expensive ships, then converted into three or four different formulas of gas, transported into trucks that cost over a hundred thousand bucks apiece, then your local gas station has to spend a fortune on safety devices to make sure you don't blow yourself up. At two twenty six a gallon, of which forty six cents is taxes in the US, that's a pretty good bargain. So I guess, uh, you know, we just have to understand that gas production and consumption is, is flowing like a steady river. It's not like a low-demand static commodity sitting on a shelf somewhere. Right now, there's a dam up at the refineries with unprocessed unpro oil starting to back up simply because they can't keep up with the demand. Now, is that really so hard to understand? Uh, you know, Bruce Cran, head of the Consumers Association, can't seem to understand it. He says it doesn't matter what the reasons are. Well, what's he saying? It doesn't matter. How can it not matter what the reasons are? If you're going to solve a problem, if you want to address it, aren't the reasons paramount? Aren't they absolutely important? And then you've got this whole, uh, you know, Stephen Harper's government subsidies to purchasers of hybrid cars, and somebody who calculated it out to, work, out to over $14 per liter in subsidies. And that money comes out of all the pockets of millions of Canadians who are supposed to have all this cash to go green. You know, if it weren't really so sickening, I think uh, I'd be laughing about this, but it's really not that funny. Anyways, if you want to join in on the conversation, it is 519-681-3600. Uh, is that the right one? And uh, we will, after when, when we return, I'll be back with uh, more on global warming and the whole environmental frenzy that we find ourselves in the midst of today. Of course, tomorrow they're going to be re releasing the, uh, the next report on the IPCC report, so expect that. On the other side, we'll be talking about flicking off your lights, about light bulbs, and a few other things regarding uh, the comments of Elizabeth May. Oh, look at the time, huh? <laughs> We've reached the halfway point in my show, which means that I have to do the rest in French. It is an official language. What does that mean anyway? Official language. All the other languages are now unofficial. Huh? You write a contract in Italian, it's illegal. Well, chances are. The man to whom the news wouldn't be the news without the news. Here's Dickie. Hey, you're a wild crowd tonight. Wow. May the good fairy swickle your zillman. Jackson, Mississippi, a spokesman for the Mississippi Teachers Association, currently threatening a statewide teacher's strike, said today, and I quote, All of we teachers are not going back to the classroom until we get paid lots more better. <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio, the National Association of Manufacturers today denied that the pollution of Lake Erie is caused by industrial waste from factories along its shores. 
they insist the blame be put where it truly belongs on the lake's 800,000 dead fish. <laughs> flick all your illmen, or rather flick off, which is the campaign, one of the many campaigns that have come out of this, uh, what I call, environmental frenzy. 519-661-3600 if you want to join us here. Good morning, I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We'll be here with you till, from now till noon. Environment, yes. Environmentalism, no. That's my basic stand on this whole thing. You know, there's more to understanding global warming than just the science of it. You've also got to understand the philosophy and the politics of it. I, I honestly believe, and I just can't help put it any other way, that we're, we're witnessing an endarkenment here of the way people think about, just even the way they think about issues generally. Um, this unrelenting, what I have to call, irrationality of the environmental is wearing a lot of people down. I know it is, and I know some of their resistance is waning. Talking to a friend of mine the other day, he says he just can't take it anymore. He's listening to all the stuff. He says it's it's just depressing. The stupid ideas never end. He says they're banning plastic bags, banning light bulbs, flick off campaigns, solar panel farms that are, you know, producing electricity at forty six cents per kilowatt, government subsidies to car to, to car buyers. You know, uh, he he just can't take it anymore. And I'm thinking, well, you know, that's a bit part of the plan, really. I mean, they're going to keep wearing at you, and tomorrow's the next. Uh, report that's going to be coming out, which has all been planned years and years in advance. And, uh, you know, if you really stop to think about it, it's I'm almost starting to think the green movement itself has been misnamed somewhat. Because greening of the planet, they're kind of opposed to, because that's what CO2 does to the planet. It greens the planet. What they really want to do is cool the planet so that we'll have more snow and more ice packs, because they seem to panic whenever they see a, an ice shelf fall into the sea. So uh, in this regard, maybe the green environment, environmentalists should actually be called, you know, the Snow Whites because they're all, they're all flakes as far as I'm concerned. And I think this whole movement is really a snow job. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But we've had some very interesting developments on this whole thing in the past week or so, and not the least of which, and everybody has been talking about it, is the comments of Elizabeth May. I mean, it's ironic this is the month of May. Will this be her month? <laughs> uh, here is, it's an interesting thing, you know, I always hear criticisms about the religious right. I think what you're seeing here is a bit of a taste of the religious left. And, uh, you know, it's, the London Free Press quoted her as saying, and, I'm, and I quote, we're playing with the forces that led to creation. We're nearing the edge of the life force and we're still playing around. We have a moral obligation to our Lord and Father to ensure we will not destroy the creation that was given to us, she says. Well, that's certainly not science, and it's certainly not a reason that I would be looking at to do any of the kinds of things that they're planning to do with Kyoto and all those other things. I don't even know what the two have to do with each other. But playing with the forces that led to creation, I, you know, if you believe in creation, well, that's fine. I think existence has always existed. And what we're playing with, and we're not playing, we're using nature to survive. It's called, you know, just using nature. Um, nature to be commanded must be obeyed, as Francis Bacon said. And so if we want to survive on this planet, and that's what they generally don't want to talk about, is what are man's requirements, um, we have to do, we have to, quote, exploit the planet. What else are we going to do? But, of course, the big issue that, that got her into trouble was not so much 
those comments as her reference to uh, Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler during the last war, and of course there's been the response from the Jewish community, outraged at her, you know, comparing global warming to the Holocaust. Um, all very interesting, but kind of beside the point to me. Um, it's a really a great irony if you think about it. When you think that, you know, the Green Movement is such, and I've done my research on this, it's a, it's a, it's a direct consequence and descendant of the German Volkisch Movement, that was advocated by Adolf himself. Uh, he was a great environmentalist, and his philosophy of environmentalism was perfectly consistent with his p philosophy of politics. So if we're going to talk about appeasement, I guess in effect Chamberlain was appeasing an environmentalist, if you want to look at it that way. But consider the background of all this. What have we been calling all the people who, who do not share this global warming pathology? We call them deniers, don't we? Isn't that the word we use? Isn't that the word we've been using? Uh, you know, isn't, isn't the obvious association to Holocaust deniers? You know, hello. I mean, the National Post even has a regular feature. Uh, they got, got a series featuring many qualified scientists, and they run them under, under a column called deniers. They're denying, you know. And, uh, you know, it's all kind of very Hit Hitlerian, isn't it? Uh, I watched Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth on the weekend. If I have time to get to that, I'm going to tell you what I, what I saw there. But, um, you know, even right after talking about hurricanes and tornadoes in his movie, An Inconvenient Truth, he starts referring to, quote, another storm in the 1930s of a different kind and makes the same reference that Elizabeth May does. In fact, I was quite astonished when I was watching An Inconvenient Truth how much to the script that Elizabeth May and David Suzuki and the rest of them actually follow almost verbatim what is in this movie. If you haven't seen this movie, even if you don't agree with it, I would almost recommend you watch it because, boy, it'll teach you a lot about where many of these ideas are coming from. But, you know, Gore in his movie even says, uh, after talking about this storm in the 1930s, which is completely false thinking. You know, you cannot compare... Uh, weather storms to the kind of, quote, storm, and quote, the human beings create. They're, they're two totally different things. Uh, Philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand used to always call that confusing the metaphysical with the man-made. That means confusing na natural things with things that man does, and then treating them as if they're the same things. But, you know, after saying this, he goes on in just one rambling, disjointed set of arguments, talking about Churchill, some period of consequence, Suddenly, Florida is too close to call, insurance claims are up, and the book of Revelations, all in one run-on argument that I just couldn't make sense of, and I kid you not. But, let's face it, the whole Green Movement has been framed in this outrageous and offensive garb. It, uh, you know, it's just sort of, they want to instill a sense of fear and terror and irrationality in people, all with smiley faces, of course. Because um, there's the idea that you cannot disagree or you're a denier, or you cannot disagree, or you're not, uh, you know, you're not on God's side, or the Lord, the Father, and all this stuff. Um, it's outrageous. It's, you just can't go around saying things like that. Haven't we developed beyond that by now? Uh, there's another irony here, too. You know, Elizabeth May has accused Harper of being an appeaser. Uh, the real irony is that she's right. He is an appeaser to environmentalists like her, like Suzuki and Gore. It, and I think it's his appeasement to them and what they're doing that I, that's responsible for his drop in the, his party's poll ratings. 
with uh, you know subsidies to a select few you know who get these fuel efficient vehicles uh, he's joined the banning the light bulb crusade i mean he sounds to me like one of one of the people in the green movement where why would he even want to associate with these ideas so what he's done is position himself between a rock and a hard place on the one hand he he did say in the past that he believed Kyoto and, and other initiatives of this nature were just these socialist plans to transfer wealth from the West to the other parts of the world. And now he's on board. So uh, he's probably upset both sides, and either side believes him. The people that supported him suddenly see him betraying, betraying them, quote, uh, going over to uh, th- this whole green movement. And the people who are environmentalists are probably looking at Harper and not really believing him. They don't really trust him. They say, well, look, you said this. How come you're saying this now? And what are you going to say when you get elected next time? So you can say what you want about that, but uh, they're all on board. I mean, you can flick Elizabeth May off if you want, and that whole campaign is another ridiculous thing, uh, you know, switching off everything. That's not necessarily the best thing to do if you're looking to save power. Um on this flick-off campaign, of course, it got all its attention because of its uh, similarity to another F-word, and it's just hilarious watching our politicians out there arguing about this and making issues of it. Um, turning off everything every time you go in another room is not necessarily an energy-saving thing. I learned this in electronics quite a while ago. Uh, you turn on a regular bulb for a short period of time, it takes more energy to start that bulb up in the first few seconds than it does to keep it running for, depending on the rating of the bulb, but I've seen up to an hour, a few minutes to an hour. So if you're going in and out of a room every four minutes and turning the light on and off, you've just used about eight hours of, of electricity. Particularly true as well of television sets and electronic equipment that really shouldn't be turned off, you know, on and off, on and off, on and off. They're meant to be running, quite frankly, full-time, but you don't want to do that all the time. They have all kinds of energy-saving devices in them. I remember going through all of my appliances and VCRs and things like that. Uh, I, you'd keep the manuals, and you see how much power they use. The power consumption on these things has dropped from uh, 100 and something watts just a few years ago to uh, DVD players almost immeasurable in, in, in those kind of terms, in terms of how much power it uses. So, uh, you know, I live in an apartment building, too. It's, it's really funny. And, and in the laundry rooms, they've already got these new lights in there. And uh, when you first step in the room and you go to turn the light on, you could be standing in the dark there for about 30 seconds while it's trying to warm up. And so when it finally warms up, it gets going, you step out, and then some kind person while you're gone has come in and turned the light off. And, you know, I was only planning to leave the light on for an hour or so, which I think would be less power than t- clicking it on and off a, f- a few times and forcing it to go through that extra charge-up period. So um, it's not always a simple as it looks, even in the science of it and the way things operate on energy. So it's just another one of those fads that they're getting us into. And uh, anyways, more to say on that after we get out or come out of this set of uh, ads. And we will continue on the other side with a little bit more of a few inconvenient truths about the environment. See you on the other side. People get me fired up sometimes. I have a friend of mine who's absolutely obsessed with the fact that Shaquille O'Neal makes too much money, which there's no such thing as too much money. You know how I know there's no such thing as too much money? Because the only time people say the term too much money is when you got to pay it or somebody else is getting it. That's the only time. None of us have ever been walking down the street and saw $40 like, man, that's $40. Well, I'm just going to take 20 because 40 is too much for me. <laughs> 
Besides, some people are born to do what they do. Obviously, Shaquille O'Neal is born to be a basketball player. He is seven foot one, 325 pounds. He's got a size 25 shoe. His hands are bigger than a microwave. What else could he be? <laughs> would you want him to be anything else in society? Really, would you? Like, who here wants Shaq to be a proctologist? Because I know I don't. <laughs> Castalia and your Commonwealth. If you think I'll cooperate in the cover-up, you're mistaken. The Commonwealth stands for anything and stands for open process of the law. Nothing is more important than the truth. And I suppose that includes an inconvenient truth as well. Uh, of course, that was Captain Dylan Hunt from the Spaceship Andromeda, which is quite a philosophical show if you've ever listened to it, and quite a bit about how, uh, you know, starting trying to start a government up from scratch in a funny sort of way. But anyways, I, I did the dirty deed on the weekend. I sat down and I watched Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. Someone lent me uh, uh, a DVD of the show. I understand it won some uh, some awards, and uh, so I sat down and took some notes. Uh, when you have a DVD, you can actually freeze, stop it, and write down the stats that, that are passing by you very quickly that you might not be able to do otherwise in the theater. Uh, by the way, if you want to join us, we're at 519-661-3600. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to Just Right here on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you just for a few more moments till the top of the hour. So, basically, I've got about three or four pages of notes here. I'm not going to get to them all. Not a chance uh, of, of comments and, and observations that I made about Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. This is truly, whatever you may think about it, it's, it's a truly influential piece of our time because so many uh, people are being influenced by it. Governments are being completely uh, uh, taken over by the ideas in it. Not necessarily Al Gore himself, okay? But some very interesting uh, comments and observations that I made. But basically, if I was going to zero in on what was the basic point that Al Gore is trying to get at, uh, besides, to me, of course, I regard the whole thing as a, the whole thing really as as propaganda, and in so many ways, because really, what he's after is is a form of government control over the marketplace, over science, over technology, over industry. That is really what the whole movement is about. And it's interesting because uh, here's how Gore positions the whole situation. I'm quoting him here. Quote, We are witnessing a collision between our civilization and the earth. Now, that sentence alone bothers me. I mean, a collision between civilization and earth? You mean I've got to give up being civilized or have the earth? What kind of equation is that? You know, that just doesn't make sense. But anyways, he says there's three factors causing this collision. And basically, they're population, science and technology, and thinking. Now, what do those three things all have in common? Well, they're people, aren't they? People are the population he's talking about. He's not talking about polar bears or animals. Science and technology, that's a product of the human mind. And thinking itself is 
a process of the human mind. So basically, he's saying that we're the problem because we basically exist. And in order to even survive, we have to do things to the earth to, quote, disturb nature, as though we were something unnatural on this planet. And then he points out about how the population's increasing, you know, exponentially. He says, quote, So if it takes 10,000 generations to reach 2 billion, and then in one human lifetime, ours... It goes from 2 billion to 9 billion. Something profoundly different is going on right now. Well, I don't know that it is. Seems like simple math to me. I mean, if you start with 1 and then you double it and you get 2 and you double it and you get 4 and you double it and you get 8 and you double it and get 16 and so on, eventually when you got 2 billion, if each of them have 3 kids, you're going to get to 9 billion pretty fast. That's not kind of hard to figure out, is it? But of course, that's not, that's just the math of it. That's... You might you might want to ask, well, why didn't we get up to these numbers in years past? Why didn't we hit the 2 billion or 10 billion mark uh, a thousand years ago or at the time of Christ, 2,000 years ago? Because there is something different that has occurred in the last century or two, and that is the socioeconomic system known as capitalism. And that's what gave people the wealth, the knowledge, the experience, the power to resist nature, which was killing them <laughs> at a rate... Uh, that was unbelievable. If you look at life, life expectancies in the past and life expectancies today, you can see what science, technologies, and thinking has done in order to improve mankind's life. But, you know, Gore looks at, the, looks at our existence as, quote, putting pressure on the earth, putting pressure on the earth, uh, which just basically means uh, nothing, really, because, of course, we're going to put pressure on the earth. Uh, we eat what this, we breathe the air, we exhale into the air. We're part of this planet. We're not something different from it. But it's interesting when I looked at his statistics. Now, talking about strictly CO2 now, okay, he uh, points out who are the biggest culprits in the CO2 thing, and here's how he has break, broken them down. You know, we're, we're doing pretty good up here in Canada. We only account for 2.3%, even according to Gore in terms of CO2 production and things of that nature. But uh, USA, 30%, Europe, 27%, South America, 3%, Africa, 2 Mideast, 2.6%, Soviet Union, only 13%, uh, China and India, 12%, Japan, 37 Australia, 1.1%. Definitely the two biggies on this list are USA at 30.3%, Europe at 27.7%. Well, that's very interesting, because in another section of the show... He points out that, and I quote, almost 30% of the CO2 that goes up into the atmosphere comes from forest burning. And then he shows us these maps. And guess where all the forest burning is? 75% of it's in Africa, 25% in South America. And yet, if you go to the other chart, Africa only accounts for 2.5, and South America 3.8. Yet, these forest burning also count for 30%. You know, if you actually add up all the percentages, they do go over 100 by quite some considerable amount if you take it through everything he says in this movie. So there are so many contradictions, even, even on that level, that make you scratch your head. There's also the gas burning in Siberia, which were shown on, uh, you know, in yellow areas on the map that he was talking about. And that was huge, but he didn't say what percentage of uh, CO2 was coming from that. Apparently, Still, the Soviet Union is down at 13.7% or something like this. So, you know, it's uh, just the contradictions were amazing. Um, other issues I saw, again, too, that uh, 
you know, one of the biggest things, of course, everyone's arguing, wants to know the answer to this. He, he refers to these as misconceptions, and he says, of course, you know, isn't there any disagreement among scientists about whether the problem's real or not? And he goes, no, not really. We checked out 928 articles, and out of those articles, you know how many of them actually denied or doubted the cause of global warming, he says? Zero, he says. Zero out of 928. And then I'm wondering to myself, well, has he ever heard of the Oregon Treaty against Kyoto, signed by over 17,000-plus scientists? And, you know, this speaks to an issue of consensus in politics as well. Uh, I know when Einstein came up with his theory of relativity, he was not in the popular consensus of the scientific community. And he was actually, uh, through some kind of formal hearing, this was brought up to him once. You know, he said, they said, Mr. Einstein, do you not realize that 90% of the scientific community does not agree with your theory of relativity? And he just replied, he says, but Mr. Speaker, he says, it only takes one person to prove me wrong. Anyways, that's sort of the situation with the whole global warming thing. Just touched on the tip of it. This issue will not go away. We'll be talking about it again, obviously, a lot more in the future. You're going to be hearing more in the papers about it tomorrow as well, and then surely over the weekend with the release of the final IPCC report. But uh, in any case, uh, I'm Bob Metz. This is Just Right. We're going to be back here this time next week. If you want to join in the conversation again at that time or even bring up things I brought up this week, please feel free to do so. And uh, until next week, uh, remember, stay right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright oh, I wrote a lot of checks this year boy, And most of them went to the government huh? Fee for this, license for that Federal tax, sales tax, provincial tax You live in this country You might as well wake up With your checkbook in your hand huh? Every morning Alright you bastards Who gets the first one? Who do I make it out to? Federal, provincial, municipal? They're the worst elections. Huh? Nobody knows who's running. Nobody votes. Nobody gives a damn. It's like a lottery. Ah, Christ, give me six quick picks. Huh? Check your answers the next day. Hey, I got the bonus counselor. I'm doing all right. The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.